How great it is to be able to come together on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week, and to do so with the express desire and commission to, in fact, worship God in truth and in spirit, and to associate with those of like precious faith. And, of course, you and I today have assembled for the purpose of worshiping God. It's a delightful enterprise, and what a great encouragement to each of us. You probably have noticed already as you looked at the bulletin and at least gave appreciation, I think Jonathan called our attention to it a moment ago as we think about the title of the lesson this morning, having to do with examination. These opening thoughts on this very first slide past that title one really set some initial comments. Basic remarks I don't believe are in any way surprising. Examination is a rather common theme. It's a common activity about us day by day, isn't it? Those who are in charge of our water supply examine it to ensure that there aren't too many contaminants in it or that the level of them is not so sufficient as to be harmful. Furthermore, we understand so easily a whole host of additional ones. In the world of engineering and in the world of quality control, there's a great emphasis, and obviously so, upon ensuring that those materials utilized have passed necessary standards, and so they were examined. Beyond that, students, they probably are examined more than they like. So many tests. And yet we do that as instructors or those who have the particular desire and directive to ensure that their knowledge passes the particular standards that they're expected to know. In the medical profession, think how often we're examined. We go to a doctor and he examines us with regard to some issue or problem or perhaps even in light of it's just time for a regular physical examination. To say all of that is to say the Bible uses that concept and it does so in a very directed fashion. In fact, we're going to develop that in the course of our study this morning. Would you please go ahead and notice the lesson text that was read just a moment ago from the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians or rather 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, verse number 5. As we look again at this passage, I would like to ask you to listen as, as I read it. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? And you'll notice at the very outset of that passage was a reference in the King James translation at least to examination. Let's develop that as this particular slide points out some features of that text before us. First of all, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. There is a remarkable demand attached to each and every individual who would be pleasing to God in light of the words of that verse. In fact, I've asked you to note the following. It starts like this, examine yourselves. That sounds like a commandment. May I ask you to notice the Greek word, the Greek verb, I should say, that's there presented to us, that word examine, it literally means to try. It literally means to put to the test. It literally means to make trial of. And may I ask all of us to notice in the Greek, that verb is imperative, it is furthermore active, and it's second person. That thought of imperative identifies a commandment. The thought that it's active means it's an ongoing activity. This can't be done just once. 
It must be done on an ongoing, continuous basis. And the fact that second person highlights the fact it's addressed to everybody that would be pleasing to God. Not just to one, not just to the elder, the preacher, or perhaps the deacon, but to everybody that in fact would desire to be pleasing to the great God of heaven. Examine yourselves. Perhaps in light of that, notice this. Earlier, when we began this lesson, we noted examination is a common activity. Doctor's office, engineering profession, the character of, of course, students. Here, who are the ones that are supposed to do the examining? Who are those that are supposed to put things to a test? And Paul's quick to say, examine yourselves. This is a responsibility given to all of us, isn't it? Examine yourselves. As I examine myself and as you examine yourself, kind of remarkable, isn't it? You may notice, of course, readily the matter is this. These examinations to which we turn our attention in the common world about us, they all have a goal. Things need to meet standards. Well, what did Paul say? Paul, why are we supposed to examine ourselves? What's the point of it? He quickly says, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. And there's the point. Those Corinthians were admonished, yea, even commanded in the ancient past that they were to carefully analyze, put to the test themselves in order to determine whether they were in the faith or not. As you and I develop that, might we note the following. If that verse then has any significance at all, it clearly identifies that there apparently are certain things that a person could then analyze in light of his or her life to know whether or not he's in the faith or not. If I'm doing these things properly, I am in the faith. If I'm not doing them properly, then I'm not in the faith. I wonder what some of those things are. What could you and I look at in regard to our life and say, Oh, this is wonderful. This is a testimony to the fact I am walking in the faith as God would have me to. But on the other hand, if here are some matters in my life as a result of examination and they're not appropriate, then apparently they're clear evidence. I need to make some changes at once. I wonder what some of these ideas are. Might I invite you to notice another aspect of that verse? And it's stated with such power. Prove your own selves. It is true, isn't it, that as Paul asserted this necessity of proving your own selves, it highlights before us the impressive and rather direct need Prove, of course, is to set out as, as approved. How do I and how do you stand approved before God? Is it because some man says I'm approved? Is it because some convention or a conference says I am? Of course not. The character of approval is determined in harmony with and in light of the revelations of His Word. And if in that we then find by scrutiny and by analysis of examination that our life mirrors it, we should be so thankful for that Word of God and feel honored to be obedient to it. If, on the other hand, our life does not reflect wonderfully and positively in light of that Word, it says we're not in the faith. It doesn't matter what we might think, and it doesn't matter what others may have told us. If our life doesn't pass that examination, we're lost, and we'll lose our soul. As you notice at the bottom of that slide, what are some of these items? 
Well, we're going to take a considered matter in light of the letters to the Corinthians and see what are some things that they were told to examine to know whether or not they're in the faith or not. As we begin that particular study, here's the first element on the list. It has to do with obedience in relation to loyalty. Obedience in relation to loyalty. Consider these things with me if you would. There are times when an individual can obey or at least do what perhaps the Lord would say. But he not only does it reluctantly, he often does it somewhat selfishly. There's something in it in him or in it for him or for her. But yet as you and I look at the New Testament, we find on so many occasions that obedience to God must be a very selfless thing. Consider this with me. As you think back to the days of Daniel chapter 3, what comes to mind? Here were three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is what we typically call them. That was their Babylonian names though, not the Israelite ones. And yet we remember that there was an image erected and Nebuchadnezzar had said, everybody's got to bow and worship it when the music plays. And so at certain times and in certain seasons, if you please, this music would play and everybody would fall before it. But three didn't. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood their ground. They stood their location. They stood their position. They did not bow before that image. As Jews, of course, such would have been idolatrous and they could not do that. Put yourself in their position a minute. How easy would it have been to rationalize? If I don't do this, I'll lose my life. Well, I'll do this, but I will understand in my mind that I really don't honor that image. I'm just doing this just because everybody else does. And isn't it often told that when in Greece, do as the Grecians do. In other words, I'm not going to give mental assent to this, but I'll go ahead and do it. They didn't feel that way. Or consider this, sometimes an individual might reason. Well, I'll do this because later it'll give me a chance to convert somebody else to God. It'll give me a chance maybe to even address Nebuchadnezzar and hopefully convert him to the truth. So I'll do this now just so I'll have opportunity later. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't reason like that at all. They said, we can't do this. And in fact, as they were given opportunity from Nebuchadnezzar, he gave them a second chance. They were hauled before him and... He then said, is it true that you didn't bow before the image? He said, I tell you what, if you will agree to bow before the image, I'll let you live. They said, King, you don't understand. We serve the God of heaven and be it known to you that we are not going to bow before this image. Now, if it be that God deliver us, well and good, but if not, you need to understand we're not bowing down. How well does that describe your faith and mine? We sometimes want to rationalize and justify and think about what ultimate means might develop later. The fact is, faithfulness is something that's not just a matter for the future. It's the matter for now, isn't it? What about your loyalty and mine then in our obedience? Could circumstances develop in which we would do or engage in certain things, knowing all the while that the Bible condemns it, but justifying it for, call for what might develop later? If so, that's not genuine obedience. And that does not pass the test either. 
examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. None of us know what may come down the line, if you please, in the future. Currently, we're able to meet in friendly confines every Sunday and Wednesday, and no one's waiting at the door to put us in prison if we come. And they're not waiting at the door with a gun to force us to prison if we worship. What if that day were to come? Would you and I still be faithful? Or would we justify our absence by saying, well, this is perhaps a circumstance where we can get by without it, and God will understand? Will He? First century Christians met every first day of every week, Acts 20, verse 7. And when they did, they, of course, did so with a desire to worship and please the God of heaven. You'll notice on that slide a number of examples, and we'll quickly note a few of them in passing. In Joshua chapter 6, we remember that Joshua was given a very unorthodox set of statements. Here's the way you conquer Jericho. You march around it once a day for six days. Don't shout, don't holler, don't do anything. Just march around it. And then on the seventh day, march around it seven times. And when you finish that seventh time, then give a mighty shout and the God of heaven will give you the city. And they did it. Without a doubt, it would seem to me the most unorthodox military expedition ever waged. What other city was ever conquered that way? But Joshua did it. Didn't matter what the world thought. I wonder what his military advisors would have thought. I've often suspected they must have thought, what a nonsensical attitude and approach this is. But after it was over, of course, they were victorious because God was with them. May you and I be faithful unto death, obediently, thoroughly. Revelation 2 verse 10. You'll notice perhaps one other thought. That obedience must be prompted again by the heart, mustn't it? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Romans six seventeen. Isn't that a powerful statement? Your obedience and mine must be prompted and motivated by our sincere desire to obey and please God. Not for social acumen, not to please men, not for political advantage. None of that should be motivation for our obedience to God. Maybe in light of that, what about another idea? How else could we see if we pass the test or not? What about our attitude toward worship? It's perhaps so easy to notice, isn't it, that worship is such a vital part of service to God. It always has been. Even in the Old Testament, worship for Israel and worship for the patriarchs was vitally significant. In fact, even as far back as Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4, they, of course, involved themselves in worship, and God had respect to Abel's, but he didn't have respect to Cain's. We learn from an early position then that some worship is acceptable and some worship is not. Some worship is appropriate and some worship is not. Well, what about this significance of worship in terms of being acceptable? This, again, is a powerful test. What about examining myself and yourself? I've listed a few verses. Might we ask about this? We know that as we worship, there are several actions in which we participate. One of them is singing. To the very same church in Corinth, Paul said, I'll sing with the Spirit 
and I'll sing with the understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. What about applying that test to you and me today? Do I sing with the Spirit? Do I sing at all? Do I just sit on the pew while everybody else sings? If so, I'm not singing. And so it looks like I'm violating these commandments. But second question, even if I sing, what if I'm not singing with the Spirit? What if I mouth the words and have not the slightest idea of what I just sang? That's not appropriate either. I'll sing with the Spirit. As you and I sing, in fact, the words of those songs, and our leaders carefully select the songs and we sing them together, and we should appreciate the message of those words so that we sing with Spirit and with understanding. You'll notice in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, as it relates to our contribution, that's another part of worship, isn't it? I must give never grudgingly, never wishing I could hold on to this, but thankful to God that I've been able to acquire it by His blessing and freely give it back to Him. You'll notice if we give grudgingly or of necessity, we're not that cheerful giver that God looks upon with such favor. Isn't it true that widow in Luke 21, she only had two mites. That's not a lot, but she gave all she had. Now you and I, as we think about the opportunity that's ours to give as we've been prospered, 1 Corinthians 16, 1, to give in such a way to promote and to assist the work of the kingdom, that's a great blessing. Maybe that final passage in 2 Timothy 2.15 brings us to the very activity in which we're engaged right now. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How thrilling it is to rightly divide the book of God, to make right application, correct interpretation. That's what we seek to do in our Bible study as well as our worship services. At the bottom of that slide was only part of the story. What about that worship that was not acceptable? Well, I would call to your attention Isaiah 1, verses 11 to 15. We won't read all of those verses, but the idea under description there is the children of Israel, and God asks them some very pertinent questions. To what purpose is the multitude of these sacrifices which you give unto me? They were bringing the sacrifices just as they'd been commanded in the law of Moses. Their burnt offerings and the other offerings commanded of them. And yet God asks, why are you bringing this? What's the purpose of it? Well, God, didn't you command it? What, what do you mean, what's the purpose? God proceeds to describe to them some problems. Oh, you're bringing the sacrifices all right, but your heart's not in it. Oh, you go through the motions, but your heart isn't in it. And he exactly told that to them in Ezekiel 33, 31. Your heart's not in it. Back to our attitude in worship. Do you and I look forward to the opportunity to worship? Or is it just a habit we go through once or twice or three times a week? May it be meaningful. May it be deeply profound. May it be so great a part of our life that quite frankly it just isn't right without it. I know many have commented to Denise and me that perhaps when illness comes or other difficulties and you aren't able to come, the week just doesn't seem right when you can't be there on Wednesday night or when you're not able to be there both 
services on Sunday. May we always feel that way so that our heart is so anxious to come and worship the God of heaven. You'll notice as you look at that slide, Jesus commanded it of us, didn't he? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, of him only shalt thou serve, Matthew 4 verse 10. At this point, question, am I passing the test? Are you passing the test? Are we passing the examination? What about the next one, number three? The subject of attendance. It goes without saying you can't worship if you don't come. And yet we've just seen the significance of attitude as it relates to worship, but the Bible also lays great significance on the very presence and the very importance of, of, of assembling. I would ask you to start like this. So many passages in the New Testament make references to the disciples coming together. Sometimes that very phrase is used. Other times it's the word assemble. However it's employed, be it in Acts 27, 1 Corinthians 11, as well as chapter 14. In fact, three times in that 14th chapter, Paul expressly said, When ye come together, the church in Corinth came together. As they did so, consider what other things they were blessed to appreciate. Let's develop some of them like this. First, we would do well to recollect the commandment that God expressly has given. It's worded most clearly in Hebrews 10.25, but on that occasion we read, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." It might be fair to ask, how much plainer could God have made that? Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, he did go on to say, as the manner of some is, and so there were some in the first century who didn't assemble like they should have. They were neglecting it. They were choosing not to come. The Hebrew writer wrote to them and said, don't do that. Don't forsake the assemblies. Might we say this is one of the clear marks that you and I can use to examine ourselves. How faithful am I in my attendance? Does it seem the slightest thing can lead me to not be there? I've got a hangnail tonight. I think I'll stay home. I can't seem to get my shoes tied fast enough. I, it's still a little bit too hard. I think I'll stay home. Kind of ironic, we can seemingly get everywhere else on time. And we can get there without any difficulty. Grocery stores and to get our hair cut. What about the services of the church? How important are they to us? You'll notice at the bottom of this, the Bible makes some various conclusions rather clear. If we fail to come, that is to say, deliberately choosing not to come when I could be there without any hindrances of any other providential character. Think about all the things that we're violating in Scripture. First of all, we expressly are told in Ephesians 3.21, that's when we glorify God. So that means I'm willfully choosing not to glorify God through Christ. Does that sound serious? In Matthew 14, Jesus expressly commanded worship, and I'm choosing not to do that. Does that sound serious? In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we are commanded to edify one another. But if everybody else is there and I'm not, how can I edify them? Does that sound serious? 
In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we are commanded to warn each other. If they're all there and I'm not, how can I warn them? Does that sound like I'm passing the test? Furthermore, we're taught in James 4.17 that to know to do good and do it not, that's sin. It's certainly a good thing to assemble with the saints. And if I'm choosing not to do it, I'm failing to do what's good and that's sin. Is it a sin to willfully miss the services? Absolutely. Not only that, we're commanded to teach each other. If they're all there and I'm not, how can I teach them? All of those things and others could well lead us to conclude it's serious business to fail to assemble when, when we can do it. No wonder at the very bottom, might you and I remember the very day that we were baptized into Christ, we made a commitment. We made a commitment. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the confession we made. If I'm failing to assemble with the saints, it doesn't seem like I'm very faithful to that confession because all those that love Him and all those that adore Him are there and I'm choosing not to. That would not lead to passing that examination, would it? Attendance is one of the simplest things that you and I can do to give thought to are we passing this test or not? How is my faith in yours? Well, let's move on to the next point. What about nothing to see on that one? What about the matter of prayer? When you think about how much the Bible has to say about it, our development will obviously be somewhat brief because we all understand the significance of prayer. In a very basic way, isn't it like this? We have a Heavenly Father. He loves us. He sent His Son to die for us. He is infinite in His knowledge and infinite in His understanding, Psalm 147, verse 5. And we, as lowly creatures on earth, our knowledge isn't infinite like He is. Our understanding isn't as great as He is. And we need His help. How often then should we be given to prayer? To thank Him for all that He has done, but to beseech His wisdom and beseech His guidance. Look at some of these passages. How often should a person pray? Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing. In light of our study just a few minutes ago, brethren are going to assemble and pray, and so if I choose not to be there, I'm choosing not to pray with them. Does that sound good? In light of prayer itself, Prayers, according to the Bible, don't have to be extremely long. So many of the prayers you and I read about in the Word of God are relatively brief. The prayer of Jabez in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, that was brief. Even Jesus' prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and following, 69 words is all it is. The whole thing could be uttered in less than a minute. But think about how much is in it. Our Father which art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And yet the number of elements in that prayer is truly staggering. you notice though there should be a heart desirous of praying may not be a long prayer, but how earnest should be our petitions within it. 
we're told in John 9, 31 that God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. And so if my heart's not in tune with His Word, I have no reason to expect that He'll hear me. I have no reason to expect that He will, in fact, offer the thing for which I've asked. Maybe in light of that, can we not recollect as the faithful of God how powerful prayer is? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And as you and I believe that, we in fact should be excited to pray because we're relying not on our ability but His. That text perhaps leads us to this. Am I passing the test? Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. What about my prayer life and what about yours? Do you go days and days without ever praying? Daniel prayed three times every day, Daniel 6, verse 10. The psalmist prayed seven times a day in Psalm 119, verses 160 and 161. Jesus prayed all night long in Luke 6, verse 12. In the Garden of Gethsemane, prior to that crucifixion the next day, such earnestness in prayer that, of course, the sweat was of drops of blood. You and I might at least for the moment ask, so what about our prayer life? Does it indicate a person of faithfulness or not? As we finish that one, what about the study of the Word of God? We noticed earlier in our time together this morning about the vitality of the Word of God and how, how much of a treasure that Bible really is. The longer we live, as faithful individuals, the greater that treasure appears to us. It is the only way that leads to heaven, my friend, the only one. I don't care what else science may discover. It doesn't matter what else the considerations of men may present. It fails in comparison to this. If we want to know how to live here, it's in here. If we want to know how to live to die right with God, it's in here. If we want to know what heaven's like, it's in here. And if we want to know how to be good fathers and good mothers, good husbands and good wives, good co-workers and friends, it's all in here. No wonder we need to study it, to open its blessed pages and to allow it to enrich our lives. This bottom point then is going to take us to start in 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. Doesn't that thrill and excite you to consider? I can be like that, but it's only by virtue of an exposition of the Word of God. No wonder then as you come to the top, it's this book that will be one of those opened at the judgment. And your life and mine will be laid bare in comparison to it. Are we passing the test or not? Thanks be to God He's told us what the final exam is going to be like. My students at school, they get so excited if ever I give a take-home exam. Because they can use the book and their notes or whatever else. God has told us everything on the test. It's our fault if we don't pass it. Nobody else's. Not even the devil's. Oh, he tries to make us fail, but we've got to go along with him. Are you passing the test? Am I? We mentioned earlier about the importance of assembling with the saints at worship. What does this one say about the assemblies at the Bible study periods? If this book is going to be opened at judgment, and if your life and mine is going to be judged out of it, 
by virtue of association to it. And that's told to us, isn't it, in John 12, 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him at the last day. Thanks be unto God, we've got the word. And may we thus tune ourselves to all opportunities we have to avail or study of it. Gathering with the saints on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. Looking forward to those times. I would ask you to consider what a great danger is presented in the Bible concerning those who twist and pervert and do not teach the truth. And the only way we can ascertain truth is by comparison to this. That's the only way. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. This hits every one of us. I know that it does. I hope each of us have been encouraged. These are just five things we can consider to know whether or not you and I are in the faith. And if we aren't, may we make changes at once because we don't know about tomorrow. We may be standing, if you please, beyond the door of death by then. This very morning as we come to the close of this lesson, those things at the bottom are now yours and mine. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and said, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Are you in the faith? Am I in the faith? We can know whether we are or not. It's not left to just subjective consideration. There are definite objective things, and you and I can know it, and we've looked at a few of them. I've listed them one last time. How do you and I feel about obeying God? Some obey as long as it's convenient, but the very minute it's not, I'm not going to do that. If that's the way you feel, we're not passing the test. We've also learned about the attitude toward worship. Do you look forward? Do you get excited about the thought of assembling with the saints? If not, you need to work on that. May I submit one of the first things to do to work on it is start meeting with the saints, and you soon will grow to love that time, and you'll soon grow to thrill at the thought of it. And the Lord Jesus Christ will soon bring you to where you need to be. But you need to make the first step. It may be today you need to repent of purposefully and deliberately missing the services of the church. As you come to the next one, what about both prayer and Bible study? As we each examine ourselves, the question now ends with this one. Are you passing the test? A song of encouragement has been selected. If anyone today, in the sound of my voice, would have yourself in a position of needing to respond publicly, this is a time and a convenient one at that that we would very much love to assist you. The Lord Jesus Christ has said He's coming again and to receive you into a place that He's prepared. Don't you want to go to that place called heaven? If so, you've got to pass the test. And if you need to examine yourself in such a way to make changes, why not do it at once while together we stand and while we sing?